Let's pray. Lord God, once again, you've gathered us together that we might recognize your holy name, that we might understand your word and how it applies to us, that we might worship you in these ways. Father God, we thank you for bringing us here. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. I am a dyed-in-the-wool, red, white, and blue-blooded American. If you cut me, I bleed the stars and stripes. I was born and raised in what I humbly consider the greatest country in the world. And I know what it is to be upset, even angry, when, when our government or our culture makes decisions and choices that affect our country that I would never make. Every time I, I flick on the Facebook now, there, there's a picture of a Nike advertisement. Have you seen any of those with, with uh, that Kaepernick guy? And he takes a knee during the, the national anthem, right? And, and people are ranting about this. How dare they pick someone as their front man who won't stand for the national anthem? Lots of Christians are joining in on this game. And there are days when I want to uh, put the little laughy thing, the, like I'm laughing at this, or I want to make a comment. I just want to join right in with them. But how am I to live as a citizen of these constantly changing United States? How does God want me as a Christian to live in this world. Scripture has a, a few things to say about our citizenship here on earth. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. Peter tells us to show respect to everyone. Honor the emperor. The emperor at that time, Nero, right? Eek. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Pray for our governing leaders. Matthew twenty-two twenty-one. 21. These are the words of Jesus. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Romans 13, 1 through 6. Reminds us that, that we need to let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For God is the one who has established those. That's about as far as it goes, with direct statements as to how we are to live as, as citizens under a government, uh, to, to respect them, to pray for them, to honor them, to be subject to them. But what if the government passes laws and does things that contradict God? What then? How are we to react and behave when we live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation our world isn't too different from the one that paul was in and the, and the early church paul's world was was full of sexual depravity any sexual actions desires or choices outside of the sanctity of marriage as god established it between a man and a woman these things were rampant and acceptable practice throughout the Roman Empire, and in some places, in some temples, they were considered an act of worship. And it was brought to a whole new level in places like Corinth, 
San Francisco, Las Vegas. Paul was in jail. And the Philippian church was being persecuted for their faith. Christians taken to court over wedding cakes. Their businesses being threatened. The Ten Commandments being removed from government buildings. Today we're going to be looking at some wisdom that Paul imparts to the Philippians about how to live as Christians amongst people who don't know God while suffering persecution from them and the governing authorities. In the midst of this persecution, faced with the harsh reality of the possibility of even death for himself, what does, what does Paul suggest that they do? Gather in your living rooms and gripe constantly about the awful job that the government is doing. Right? Go to the nearest social media outlet like the RomanBath.com and, and rail on about how the president or the emperor or CNN or Fox News should have said or done this or that, right? Because that's going to get something done. That's going to make our faith shine. In the face of, of government and social persecution, Paul says, shine like stars in the heaven. Let your faith be seen and rejoice with me. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 12. I'm going to read through verse 18. Let's stand up for the reading of God's word. Philippians 2, 12, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The reading of God's word. Go ahead and be seated. Thank you. In this passage, Paul tells the Philippians that they need to have a viable, living, visible faith for others to see. Shine as lights in the world. And he gives them three tangible ways for this to happen in their lives. He says, stop grumbling and disputing. Hold fast to the word of God and rejoice. Stop grumbling and disputing. Hold fast to the word of God and rejoice. Paul says to them here in verse 12 that they need to work out their own salvation. Verse 12, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What is Paul saying here? 
Is he saying that we need to somehow do something to work out our salvation? We don't have it unless we do something, some kind of works? No. Paul is not contradicting here salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. This is rather a call to a Christ-like obedience in response to the work that God is doing in our lives. Verse 13, he goes on, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. Because of what God is doing in our lives, we then work out that salvation openly for others to see. Verse 8 is where this comes from. Verse 8, and being found in human form, here's our example of Christ himself. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ, as Christ has been obedient to the Father, so we are to live obedient to God and his word. This is, this is our right, our, our proper response to the salvation that God has worked in us through Jesus Christ. It's our right response to the, the sanctification that he continues to work in us. Our, our Christ-like commitment to the Father for what he's done in our lives, should be so honest and so real as as we come to an understanding of what Christ has done for us that we are ready to obey God when he tells us what his will is. If it is revealed to us from his word or as he works through circumstances or or through other people, as he works in us by his Spirit to, to knock on our heads and say, no, you shouldn't walk that way. I want you to walk this way. Remember what you read in my word. Our commitment to God should be so honest and real that that obedience has an integrity about it too. As Paul said here, work out your salvation so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. We shouldn't think that we can be committed to God on a part-time basis. Because in Christ, Christ as our example, that obedient example, in him God was not committed to us only in part, was he? But he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, completely committed. And we, having been purchased by the blood of Christ, we are here no longer for ourselves. We we are not our own, are we? We've been purchased, not with things that perish like gold or silver, but by the blood of our Savior, and we've been purchased not for ourselves, but to, wor- to will and to work for his good pleasure. The end of verse 13 there. We're here to will and to work for his good pleasure, whether or not we have someone else there keeping track of us. Whether or not we do have that person keeping track of us, we need to be those who will work out the work of God in us. This is, in fact, an imperative 
It's not a choice, it's not an option, it's not a a happy suggestion that Paul gives us. It's we must be those who exercise our faith. Those who work it out, those who practice what we believe, those who seek to grow in our knowledge and understanding of who God is and what he has done and what he continues to do in our lives. We need to be those, we must be those who are putting Jesus on display for everyone to see him in in how we live as well as what we say. Our faith in Christ, uh, as we have been brought to salvation through his blood, should set us apart from the world. Should be distinctly different Our our faith in Christ should be distinctly different from the cursory acknowledgement that is described to us in the book of James. James has a couple of different passages just regarding a a brief acknowledgement of who God is. He says in James 1.22, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. It's a self-deception to think that we belong to God, are Christians, are bought by his blood, if we merely hear his word and have nothing to do with it, if we don't work out that salvation. James 2, 18, 19, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even demons believe. Shudder. We need to be those who who have a a faith that works itself out. A practiced faith. An active faith. So what does this look like? In a practical sense, what does it look like to work out our faith in our culture today? I say it's a combination of love and righteousness. Just as we saw at the cross of Christ in that sacrifice, that humble sacrifice of Christ in chapter 2 right before this passage. Let's take on the oh-so-popular subject of homosexuality, which has been prevalent in our culture and in the government and in the media for about 20 years or more. When it comes to homosexuality, is it our faith to say, all you need is love? Just sing that Beatles mantra, right? Uh, To go to the point of being all-inclusive, even supportive of what they're doing. Is that what it is to be faithful, that love, God is love, and just love, right? This is the flow of our surrounding culture, isn't it? Is it our faith to adhere to a strict righteous morality? And one that goes so far as to shun anyone who would dare to wear their sin on their sleeve. To separate ourselves so far from the world that we can't even touch them anymore. That that they have no opportunity to hear the words of Christ out of our mouths. As Christians, we must display both the love and the righteousness of Christ as he works both of those things in our own lives. Just as he showed us love and righteousness in his days on earth and at the cross. 
We need to show both of these things to others. Working out our salvation can be difficult. It's hard to make these choices. Just because you know and care about somebody who is homosexual or, or tempted in that way doesn't mean that we should put a rainbow flag in our yard and support them in their sin and say, it's okay, it's all good. And then at the same time to still try and say that we hold the biblical values, that we agree with the moral values of God as he has expressed them to us in his word. On the other hand, because the idea of homosexuality offends the morals of God does not mean that we should declare the morality of our faith in an uncaring, self-righteous manner. Think Westboro Baptist. Have you heard of Westboro Baptist? Nationally known church. I decided to Google them because I couldn't think of any specific examples of what they had done. I just had this picture in my head of them being offensive in their faith. And the first article I could come up with was the Wikipedia article on them. And, and you know what it says about them? The first sentence in that article says, they are an American church known for its use of inflammatory hate speech. Is that who we are to be? We can't cast people aside who need the love of Christ just the same way we once did, didn't we? We can't cast people aside who need the love of Christ and say that we agree with the biblical value of Christ dying for us while we were still sinners. He didn't tell you, wait a minute, sorry, you're not righteous enough for me. I'll, I'll be with you when you get there. Regardless of the sin around us, we must find the balance between the righteousness of God and the love of God that witnesses the truth of God with the same grace that God has shown us in Jesus Christ. We need to speak the truth in love. We need to eat and drink with sinners just as Jesus did, while being willing to speak the truth of Jesus into their lives, graciously, truthfully and honestly. We need to find ways to show the world that love and righteousness can coexist just, just as they met perfectly in the cross of Jesus Christ. The love of God on display as our sins are washed away by his blood. The wrath of God assuaged as Jesus paid the price for our sins. The love and righteousness of God coming together right there at the cross. We must work out our faith for others to see the example of Jesus Christ in us. Because how we react to the culture and the things that go on around us, how we react to the government and those cultural decisions, that it will tell, us, it will tell them. Our reaction will tell them something about our faith. My reactions in the face of this fallen world will give people one of two pictures of my faith. Either one that is confident and assured that God has all of this crazy under control. One that looks forward to a greater future. 
One that can say, just as Paul did in verse 21 of chapter 1 here, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Or it can give them a picture of a faith that still clings to this world. One that is afraid and one that is anxious. Just as Paul warns the Philippians in chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. When immoral laws are passed or our culture walks in an immoral direction, why does it surprise us? Why does it strike fear in our hearts? Why are we frightened? Why are we shaken by these things? The world is the enemy of God. We know that. We were once his enemies, and the only thing that changed us was the grace and love of God lavished on us in Jesus Christ, right? We don't need to fear the world. If we have fear and trembling, it should be reserved for the God of our salvation, for it is he who is at work within us. Philippians 1.6. Paul reminds them, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There is nothing outside of his knowledge. Hebrews 4.13 No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. He is in complete authority and control. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from the, uh, the ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. This is the God whom we should tremble and fear before. The one who is ex exalted in glory and power. Hebrews 1, 3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his word of power. If we fear anything, let us fear God. We need to have a faith that is worked out. Paul goes on saying, you want to you be different from the world? Stop grumbling and disputing. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Here's our second imperative. We must stop complaining and arguing. We cannot go onto Facebook and have the joy of the rant that the rest of the world has. We can't walk around and, and complain the way the rest of the world does. We must stop complaining and arguing, going on those critical rants. In this very book, Paul himself is taking a hit, isn't he? He's going through a tribulation. He's in jail. He is on trial. He could die. And how does he see this? How does he look at this 
complication, this tribulation, this, this persecution. Chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul sees this hardship as an opportunity for the gospel. And he has joy in that. This, this world complains, it grumbles, and it argues about everything because their entire hope is invested in things that are bound to fail them. They're things they, they break, don't they? Haven't you found the same thing with your things? They break, they rust, they fall apart. People are mean, people are fallen in sin, they're cruel. And it hurts us and it affects our lives, doesn't it? When it comes to this world, there is, there is no lack of something to complain about. And for the world, these days and these things, it's all they have. It's no small wonder they're walking around complaining and grumbling. Is this all that you have? The things of this world that rust and break and fall apart, is this all that we have? Is that why we walk around complaining and grumbling just like the rest of the world? If we're going to be different from the world, we all need to realize that we are different from the world. We, we, have, we have so much more than the world can begin to imagine. We are children of God. Verse 15 says, well, 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. We have a hope and a future that they can't understand as children of God. We have been made blameless and innocent without blemish through the blood of Jesus Christ, haven't we? And we are called to let that hope be seen so that we shine like lights in a dark world. What good is a flashlight that is just as dark as the world around it? That grumbles and disputes and rants on just like they do. If we're going to reach the world for Christ, how effective do you think grumbling and complaining is going to be? How many people have you brought to Christ... By ranting on about the immoral culture and the, the faulty government. Anybody bring somebody to Christ by complaining about that stuff? Make them realize the truth of God and what he's done for us? Did you come to Christ through realizing the, the grace and love that he's shown you at the cross? That he has, has saved you from hell? from eternal punishment? Or, or was it the, the caustic bile of the mouth of some Christian telling you how awful this world is? Forgetting about the good graces of God in Jesus Christ. Which one was it that brought you to faith? Because that way of living is counterproductive, isn't it? To our proper perspective of this world. 
And it's counterproductive to our mission in this world. We should be the ones that people look at and they say, how can you have peace at a time like this? Well, let me tell you. Right? Well, let me tell you, I'm just as imperfect as anyone. I fight temptation and sometimes I fail, but I know that all of my sins have been paid for. By Jesus at the cross and in his resurrection, I have the hope of everlasting life. This isn't all that I have. The things that break in this world, they are temporary, short-lived. No value at all when I think about the hope that I have and the place that's been prepared for me by my Savior. I have eternal life. And so with that hope in my vision, I strive to live for him right here where I am. I'm at peace because I serve a big God. We need to be those who have an answer to the depravity and dysfunction of this world. We need to be those who hold fast to the word of life. Verse 16, Paul tells them, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run or labor in vain. Those words for hold fast to the word of life is from a a Greek word meaning to hold fast or to hold forth. To to hold fast and perhaps and to hold forth. That's what Paul is saying here. We we need to be ready to, to let God's word, the gospel, come out of us in both word and deed. To be so sure of its value in our own lives and its truth that we won't let it go from ourselves, our lives, and it comes out of us because of what God is doing in us. And as we hold fast and hold forth the truth of the gospel, that that beautiful combination of love and righteousness that we saw at the cross of Christ, we then give the hope of Christ to others, don't we? We shine as lights in the world. We declare as C.H. Spurgeon once did. Our Redeemer's glorious cry of it is finished was the death knell of all the adversaries of his people. The breaking of the arrows of the bow, the shield and the sword and the battle. Behold, the hero of Golgotha using his cross as an anvil and his woes as a hammer, dashing to shivers bundle after bundle of our sins, those poisoned arrows of the bow, trampling on every indictment and destroying every accusation. What glorious blows the mighty breaker gives with a hammer far more ponderous than the fabled weapon of Thor. Behold, he draws from its sheath the hellish workmanship of the dread sword of satanic power, and he snaps it across his knee and casts it into the fire. Beloved, no sin of a believer can now be an arrow mortally to wound him. No condemnation can now be a sword to kill him. For the punishment of our sin was borne by Christ. A full atonement was made for all our iniquities by our blessed substitute and surety. Once in a while, we need some good Spurgeon to remind us of the glory 
of our hope that we have in Jesus Christ. As we hold fast to the truth of God's word and that hope that it presents, we have reason to rejoice, don't we? Reason to rejoice even in the midst of of adversity. Verses 17 and 18, Paul reminds them that even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his trial. In Christ, we are not like the world. We are called to stick out like a sore thumb, like lights in the dark, to work out our salvation, to put our joy and our perspective of hope out there for the world to see, that they might wonder at what it is we have, as they see us not complaining in adversity, and as they witness the the confidence that our walk in Christ gives us. How different from the world am I? I have to admit, there are days and times when I am no different at all, it seems. I need to work out my salvation. Let's pray that as a church we all do that. Father God, we thank you for your spirit that reminds us, that lives in us and reminds us of the truth of your word, that reminds us that we are called to action, a a people of faith that does not just sit there and, and speak of truths, but one that works out those truths in our lives. Father God, help us to put our our Christ perspective on display. Lord, I pray that you would cause the hearts of those around us, the world around us, to see us and to, to be curious, to wonder what it is we have, why we are different, why we don't join in the in the reindeer games of the world, Lord, why we don't rant on. Help us to be those who aren't like them, that live differently. Give us strength we don't have. By your Spirit, we pray. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.